Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. I'm Xu Xinduo. In a time that seems rife with conflicts in many parts of the world, the importance of dialogue and negotiation could never be greater. Uh, the Israel-Hamas crisis is escalating and the Russian-Ukraine conflict heads into another winter. Peacemakers are urging restraint but are met with silence. We are talking to Irish politician Claire Daly, a member of the European Parliament who is known for her critical remarks on Western policy toward China and Russia, as well as the recent EU resolution on Gaza. We'll get her views on Gaza, Ukraine, and how global leaders are reacting to the growing crisis happening in our world today. Welcome to Dialogue, Claire. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We know that you have been very vocal about the situation in Gaza and you criticized the EU Parliament's resolution calling on Hamas to be eliminated and the unconditional release of Israeli hostages. And uh, you voted against the resolution, uh, however, arguing that uh, it failed to address the root causes of the conflict. So what do you consider to be the root causes of the conflict, and why doesn't the EU resolution address these causes here? Yeah, I mean, look, at, we very much uh, are opposed to the killing of innocent people, no matter where they come from, and would have great sympathy for the innocent Israeli victims of the crisis. But our opposition to the motion was rooted in the fact that the European Parliament and its institutions fail to have sympathy or condemn the actions of the Israeli states and to mourn the loss of innocent Palestinians. So the motion itself was incredibly imbalanced and we couldn't possibly deal uh, and go along with it because of that. Um, if you like, the history of the crisis in the area is rooted in the Nakba, it's rooted in the antics of the apartheid state of Israel, which has, you know, particularly in the last year, massively uh, increased settler violence, uh, desecration of mosques, and really appalling illegal activities towards uh, Palestinians. They have murdered and killed uh, thousands, tens of thousands for generations. And uh, the idea that we should be silent about that is utterly reprehensible. Mm -hmm. uh, so people would wonder, you know, what are the reasons, you know, behind the EU consideration uh, to back Israel in the ongoing conflict? Well, I think a lot of people are asking that question. And I suppose the first point to make is, is that the leadership of the European Union's miscalled <laughs> so-called leadership are the ones who traveled to Israel. They are the ones who stood shoulder to shoulder with Netanyahu. But Ursula von der Leyen, for example, has no authority to speak on behalf of the European Union in terms of foreign policy. So she was acting on her own as a, an unelected um, civil servant, really, in that regard. The people of Europe have been very vocal in their opposition to the war crimes and the genocide and ethnic cleansing being carried out by the Israeli state. So the people of Europe are very clear. A number of EU member states are also very clear as well in their opposition to what Israel is doing. Now, why has the European Union leadership backed Israel? 
Well, I suppose one of the reasons is that they always back the guy that the US backs. They have lost any semblance of independence at all. In terms of foreign policy, they don't uh, seem to distinguish between the, their actions and those of uh, the US. That's on the one hand. On the other, I think there is an historical guilt by Germans in particular because of the horrors that were carried out against the Jewish people in the Holocaust that they somehow feel that they have to compensate by um, standing by Israel. But that is such an almighty insult to the Jewish people all over the world, many of whom are totally not Zionist at all. Mm -hmm. Well, speaker for the European Commission uh, leader here, you know, more than 800 EU staff and global diplomats signed a letter to criticize uh, the EC president, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, what they call her uncontrolled support of Israel. Uh, does that mean there's a division or it is divided uh, inside the bloc over the issue here? Well, I mean, look, it's very significant. We, I don't know of any other time that staff would have taken the trouble to write a letter, hundreds of staff criticizing the commission. We know behind the scenes there is great disquiet at the unilateral actions of von der Leyen. A whole number of member state governments, including my own and the president of Ireland, have been very, very critical about the damage and the hurt that she has caused by her actions. But does this mean she's going to resign uh, or be forced out? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think that is the case. I think uh, a majority of the leadership of the EU states um, do uh, stand by Israel, mm -hmm. unfortunately. But the people in the countries certainly do not. And these countries across Europe now are under massive pressure. We've seen historically high protests breaking out in solidarity with Palestine, despite the efforts of a number of European countries to ban such activities, to ban the holding of a Palestinian flag, to ban protests. Uh, they have got their answer by the enormous numbers taking to the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, if the EU, EU continues with uh, this, um, let's say, you know, uh, pro-Israel stance, uh, what will be the impact uh, on the uh, situation in Gaza? Yeah, I mean, look, at, I would say that in terms of international law and all morals, they are now complicit in the crimes of Israel if they continue in this regard, which they have. And international law would say that those who facilitate or enable a genocide are equally culpable in front of the law. So by the European Union and the US doing this, they are enabling Israel to continue. And let's be honest about it. The only reason Israel behaves as it does is that historically and over the past number of decades, the international community, particularly the US, EU and Russia, have allowed them to do so. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that the role of the United States in both Gaza conflict and also the Ukraine crisis over there. And uh, so uh, US President Biden has been calling for uh, more assistance to Israel and to Ukraine. Uh, do you see like any end to the Ukraine conflict in the near future? Sadly, uh, it seems very, very clear that um, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is non-existent. Ukraine is hemorrhaging men, working class men who are really being thrown up as cannon fodder to keep this conflict going. 
with very little gains to show for it. But the international community will not let go. The amount of money being pumped into it, it's a bonanza for the arms companies of Europe and the US. They have pumped in and got a huge amount of money out of that crisis. They are now investing in the so-called reconstruction of Ukraine. So the European Union last week voted to give 50 billion in a Ukraine facility to rebuild uh, Ukraine, while at the same time giving 20 billion to keep on bombing and arming uh, the conflict in the years ahead. This is all about vested interests buying up Ukraine, taking an influence over its economy. They reckon now that um, foreign financial institutions have bought up more of Ukraine than the Russians have occupied. So the end of that country as a sort of a sovereign uh, country, it's going to be, I think, in crisis for quite a while to come, unfortunately. Nobody seems to be pushing for peace. It's off the headlines now. In many senses, maybe the money from the US will dry up. Maybe Biden won't get his way. But the arms companies are happy to keep the, the armory going. Uh, and a lot of the money is staying in the US and they're lying in their own pockets. But again, let's see, because certainly the eyes of the world have been taken off it by the possibility of the Middle East imploding. Uh, well, there's, uh, I mean, Malta will host uh, another round of uh, negotiation uh, over the weekend about the Ukraine crisis. But Russia is not present or will not be there. Uh, so with uh, that, uh, you know, taking into consideration, how likely uh, will there be any, say, uh, you know, viable resolution, uh, viable means to resolve with the differences here? Absolutely not. And I don't see any will for an end to the conflict in Ukraine at the moment. And where would the pressure come to end it? I mean, the leadership of the Ukrainian People in the form of Zelensky seem to be very happy just to parade around the world, get the cash in for uh, to keep this war going. I, I just don't understand where he is going with this at all. Um, maybe Biden thinks that this, I mean, if you heard his speech, it was utterly bizarre where he conflated Putin with Hamas and tried to tie the two of them together. I mean, he wasn't even making sense in his babbling um, but it does seem to be clear that the Democrats somehow think that keeping these conflicts going, maybe as a diversion from the very real economic problems at home in the US, is going to be enough to get him limping over the line in the US presidential elections next year. So against that backdrop, it's hard to see where the pressure is going to come on for a ceasefire, particularly now as the eyes of the world will be taken off Ukraine and people will... Um, be concentrating elsewhere now. So I think the conflict will sadly continue. But maybe another difficult winter um, without any gains at all, with tragic loss of life in Ukraine continuing, um, maybe there'll be a move inside that country. I, I really don't know, but I, I'm not very optimistic. Well, Claire, you mentioned uh, this, uh, the emerging of a new global order. Uh, at the same time, what we are seeing is more chaos. For example, you have a Ukraine crisis, you know, before it's finished, you have this Gaza crisis, and then we are seeing NATO expansion, like, uh, you know, to Asia, uh, probably starting with a, a new office in Tokyo, for example. Uh, how do these kind of developments, you know, have to do with emerging of a new global order? 
Totally, totally. And I mean, this is a, a dangerous period. I've made the point before that the last bite of a dying snake is the most dangerous one. And U.S. hegemony is in decline. There is no going back for the U.S. Uh, but in their desperation, they are lashing out and behaving incredibly dangerously. I mean, Biden's speech where he sought another 100 billion was for Ukraine. It was for um Israel, but it was also for Taiwan. I mean, this lunatic is obviously going to keep ratcheting up the anti-Chinese rhetoric, destabilizing the areas around the South China Sea. It's utterly, really irresponsible. And, you know, everybody knows that they goaded and used Ukraine for years as a stick to prod Russia. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, it was a very bad mistake of Putin to take the bait and invade Ukraine, not only because of the loss of life, but that action actually gave NATO a whole new lease of life. It brought the EU countries together. They clearly think they can do the same with Taiwan, but I would think that Chinese diplomats are a little bit more measured than that that they won't fall for that bait. But these are incredibly dangerous times. I mean, the possibility of a conflict spiraling in the Middle East is still very much there. That is very much alive. The actions of Israel are the actions of people who are completely without any respect for any rules at all, at all. So anything is possible against that backdrop. I don't even believe that the US behave as badly as Israel does. The US has enabled Israel to behave like that, but I don't think they would even go as far as Israel has gone. But the longer this continues, the, the worse it's going to be, the possibility of it spiraling uh, out of control. So yeah, I think these are, are very, very dangerous times, um, but they're dangerous, but they also hold the seeds of hope because we are on the verge of a new world order and any birth is difficult and painful yes. and that's partly what this is as well it's the beginning of that new world order and certainly for me being rooted in an area where we just get the narrative from the very much sort of anglicized um you know atlanticist outlook on things we have to remind ourselves all the time that these are the powers that are in decline both in terms of, of population, in terms of growth in the world economy, there is a new uh, power, a power is actually emerging, and that can only be a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, let's uh, focus a little bit on the China-EU relationship. You were in China not long ago. Uh, so what impressed you the most during your trip to China? Well, we haven't got enough time. There's too many things to deal with them all, but. Uh, Look, we, we found it amazing. I mean, I've used the example before. China has developed cities in 30 years. We can't even build one metro station in Dublin, the capital of Ireland, in 30 years. So, no, we haven't got one high-speed train. The US, I don't think, has any high-speed trains. So what has been achieved has been quite incredible. Um, I suppose some of the impressive things were some of the work done in terms of the environment was very interesting when we went home a lot of people who've been to china maybe 30 years ago had said oh but like was it not really smog and everything the pollution and all of that we said well no that's all gone now 
they've actually managed to reverse a lot of that and the air quality was very good like certainly on the Paris so we were kind of saying we don't know why China's called a developing power because uh, any Chinese people who come to Brussels or Dublin will be horrified at what they'd see on the streets of uh, Europe by comparison to the, the some of the standards in Chinese cities which were very impressive now obviously I'm sure it's uneven development. I'm sure China has loads of problems as well. Uh, no place is, is perfect, but it was uh, great to see and, and very welcoming. And uh, I find it really regrettable that the European Union has followed the US in its sort of stepping up of anti-China rhetoric and this talk of you know, de-risking and not decoupling and all of this nonsense implying sinister motives and all the rest for things that Europe and the US do themselves all the time. It's incredibly unhelpful. And actually, it would be really suicidal for European industry to go there, to cut off or reduce its links with China would be an economic disaster for for Europe. And I can only hope that some people will save the lunatics from themselves before it gets too far. Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Uh, you mentioned about this, uh, you know, the thinking, uh, at least for some people uh, in Brussels, I guess. Uh, and if you look at the relationship for the Chinese side, uh, people don't see the relationship as one of competition, uh, in particular the geopolitical competition, uh, because neither China nor the European Union is trying to dominate the world. So, yes, there are competition, but competition uh, in the sense of a part of the life, uh, competition in the sense of market, uh, you know, competition uh, for companies to compete with each other. But uh, if you look at the European Union, you know, people are increasingly talking about, as you said, de-risking or uh, value-based, you know, uh, foreign policy or China policy or, or different systems. Uh, they see risks of over-dependence, so-called over-dependence on China. Uh, so, you know, looking into the future, uh, what's the prospect of, um, you know, we, we are seeing also the frequent exchanges um, by officials from European countries, also by the Chinese side. Uh, do you think we are able to stabilize the relationship so that uh, we can find in both sides will benefit from uh, more, actually, instead of less exchanges uh, between the two sides? Yeah, and that is something that people raised a lot. And I think people felt that COVID, when the world was kind of shut down and we didn't get a chance to meet each other face to face, that that added to the problem and maybe accelerated some of the problems. I, I don't necessarily um, believe that. I think the problems with the relationship are actually on the European side. I don't think that there's anything particularly that China could or should be doing differently. I'm very aware of the diplomatic overtures that are constantly um, being made. Some of them are rebuffed. I mean, I'm reminded of the time Ursula von der Leyen again, who went to China at the same time as Macron and was, if anything, um, very, very rude and disrespectful in her intervention. 
But as I said, she is an unelected civil servant, even though she carries, she has no authority to speak. And legally, she has no authority to speak for the European Union in terms of foreign affairs matter. It was much more interesting that Macron that time was prepared to open up and do a lot of business with China. So I like to think that economically in the member states themselves, because European Union is not the United States of America. Actually, it's 27 different countries that are coming together, not, not all as, as unified as they'd like to tell you. There's huge divisions there as well. They don't act as one. Um, the arrogance at the top of the European Union at the moment is very much rooted in the old colonial attitudes that they know best. I mean, it's sour grapes. So we, we get these lectures about, oh, China is in Africa and all of this kind of thing, as if when we say, well, you're in Africa as well. Oh, but we're spreading our values. No, you're not. Everybody, China, Russia, US, Europe, they're all in Africa and in these countries to promote their own interests. In actual fact, China has probably given a better deal than the EU has. And it's certainly given a better deal than the US has because it's given investment and a mutual exchange of benefits where the US has given military bases and wars. So uh, I don't think that's constructive at all. Uh, so I think these are the things, and I suppose we are very much bound up with each other. Your, China is a hugely important trading partner for the EU. I mean, I never thought that they would be as ridiculous as they have been with the Russian sanctions. They've caused huge problems on the European economy, more so than the Russian economy. So I didn't think that would happen. But I really don't think the China one would happen because that would be even worse because China is much more significant in our impact. And I can only hope that there are people with at least some uh, diplomacy, some common sense to call it a halt. But I mean, I think you will see in the next year, years, huge uh, changes in Europe. Uh, across the European Union in the European parliamentary elections are going to be utterly chaotic. A whole number of countries are changing their governments. People in Europe are in a very bad place in their heads and in their living standards, and the fallout of that will be immense. But the leadership who are there now are the ones who are responsible for that. So they, there will be changes there. And I think China just has to keep doing what it's doing, um, you know, try and extend the olive branch, keep concentrating on diplomacy, but don't take any guff from them either. You know, there, there is an arrogance about the European Union and the institutions that is unacceptable and no country should take that off them. Mm -hmm. Well, Claire, you know, you were elected as a member of the European Parliament in 2019. And uh, you, people say you gained global attention for many of your critical views, which are very different from the mainstream of views in the Western media, in the Western politics. Uh, I wonder where do these views come from? Because you do live in the environment which you know, are similar, let's say, in terms of a value, in terms of systems, in, ter in terms of culture with other uh, European countries, for example. Uh, what make you stand out? Well, I mean, I would actually say that uh, our views are the views that are very much aligned in the hearts and minds of the citizens of Europe. It's just there is a problem that those views don't get heard either in the media 
or from the political establishment. Some of that is that a lot of our media is not independent. It's actually a lot of the US have bragged about how they fund independent media all over the world. That's in uh, Europe as well, and it means it's not independent. They pen to the tune of the US narrative quite uh, often. So I think actually most European citizens uh, think as I do, as my colleague Mick Wallace does, and I, I believe that because loads of them contact us every single day from vastly diverse EU countries to say, we agree with your call for peace, your call for justice. So I think most people are like that. I think Ireland has a special role to play. We're in the European Union. The European Union is either made up of countries who were former colonizing powers or countries from the former Soviet bloc. Ireland is a country that was colonized. We know what it's like to be oppressed, but we also are firmly, if you like, in the Western European camp. So we can be, but we're neutral or we're supposed to be. So we can be a voice well above our weight as a small country to argue for neutrality, to argue for non-alignment, for multilateral cooperation uh, around the globe and treating everybody um, as um, you know, brothers and sisters and, and in international solidarity. And I think it's that history, I suppose, that we come from. But it's one that huge numbers of people in Europe aspire to. And people shouldn't get upset. And I know a lot of foreign diplomats do when they look at the ravings coming out of the European Parliament. But you should remember that in about seven or eight countries out of the 27, the people who turned out to vote was less than 30 percent. Uh, the European Union is a bit of a bubble away from the lives of people in a lot of the member states. And, you know, when you think about it, when Ursula von der Leyen has come out with some really bad um, points about China, but Ursula von der Leyen now is hated across Europe and is not seen to be representative. So uh, I, I wouldn't read too much into her um, opinions. Mm -hmm. Well, Claire, you know, your opinions, uh, you know, I mean, at least sometimes uh, are not that popular with the mainstream politics, for example, on Ukraine, I mean, I guess on Gaza or on China. Uh, so I wonder, do these views uh, have, uh, you know, in any sense, cause you any trouble in life? Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting. I, I myself and my colleague Mick Wallace were both members of the Irish Parliament for many years. We were very well known as individuals, as anti-war activists, as uh, campaigners for justice in Ireland, and our reputation would have been good enough to get elected as independents. There are only 13 members of the European Parliament from Ireland, and we are two of them. And yes, since we came here, we have been subjected to the most vicious and sustained campaign of demonization, of being Putin puppets, of Kremlin agents, that we are either on the payroll of Moscow or at best just use, useful idiots who haven't got a clue, even though what we've said and what we've done has been the same as what we've always said and done. That campaign will possibly make it, it will make it difficult for us to be re-elected. We will be doing our absolute best. But if you keep attacking somebody all the time, um, people will think, oh, there must be some truth to it. Why are they being targeted all the time? My own opinion is we have been targeted in that way because a section of the establishment in Ireland never liked the fact that Irish people rejected European Union treaties. We argued for sovereignty 
uh, a lot more within Europe. We want to be friends and part of Europe and work with people in Europe and beyond, but we don't want to be dictated to by anybody uh, either. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for speaking with us. With that, we are coming to the end for today's show. Many thanks to our guest, Claire Daly. You can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. I'm Xu Qinduo. Thanks for being with us. See you next time.